verse 4. I just want to say, um, I did not choose this verse. This verse chose me. Okay? So, but, but that's one, th one reason why I love preaching expositionally is that we just do the next verse. We tackle the difficult passages, and this is definitely one of them. This is definitely one of those passages that has caused many debates and many, many, uh, many splits. And, and unfortunately, I don't think that has to be the case. Um, so, but let's just first read the text and then we'll dive in. Let's read from verse 3 just to get the context. Hear the word of the living God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Yes, Father, as we have sung, we want to ask you that you will test our thoughts and test our attitudes towards you and your word, even tonight, that you will search us and know if there is any wicked way in us. I pray for humility, Lord, for true humility, not just for, the, for my hearers, but for me, Lord. Please, Lord, humble me that I may be as low as I possibly can. Father, I pray that your spirit will speak clearly and we will listen to your word and believe it and accept it and adore you and worship you for who you are. Father, please give us grace. We need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last time we stopped at Ephesians, we looked at verse 3, and we just saw that we should be blessing the blessed God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Okay, there's a lot of blessing in verse 3. And, but we, we actually left, I left you hanging there because you might say, but why should I bless God? What reasons can you give me to bless God? And that's exactly what the rest of the passage explains. Look at the first two words of verse 4. It says, even as, even as. So from verse 4 up until verse 14, Paul is now going to give us blessing upon blessing upon blessing of how, how we are blessed with every spiritual blessing and for what we should be blessing God for. So if you are battling with praising God, just take these verses and read it and meditate it and praise God for these verses. And so yeah, those two words shows us that this is what Paul wants us to, to be thinking about when you think about spiritual blessings. And the very first blessing, the very first thing that should bubble up in our hearts when we praise God, or which bubbled up in the apostle's heart, remember he was in prison as he was writing this letter, the first thing he thanks and blesses God for is the blessing of election. The blessing of election. Verse 4 explains, if you are a Christian how you became a Christian. It's like, the, it's like the Christian's biology book, right? So if you ask a baby, how were you born? <laughs> so, okay, um, so that's, that's often how Christians are like, how, how, how did you come from hating God to loving God? I don't know. How did you come to trusting Him and loving Him? I don't know. I, my heart just draws to Him. I just find His word compelling and I see Jesus as glorious. But then we read the biology book. You see, oh, that's how I was born. That's how I was born again. That's, you chose me before the foundation of the world, Lord. You see, so 
this is what this verse was meant to, to do for us. It's to take us behind the scenes of God's eternal plan of how we became a Christian. What, what happened in eternity past. So it's meant to take our little lives out of 2021, out of our little troubles and prisons and suffering, and take us above the clouds and look back into eternity past and see what was going on in the heart of the triune God. And that's one reason why you should be praising and thanking God. In other words, God reveals to you in this little verse what was going on in his heart. And in the same verse, we not just see what happened in eternity past, we also see what happens in eternity future. We were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. So that is the future. So something happened in the past and something's going to happen in the future. We will be completely holy, completely blameless before him. And that's why husbands love your wives like this, right? As Christ loved the church, that you might be holy and blameless without blemish. So that is a certain reality. This will happen. But like I've said, unfortunately, this verse and verses like these have caused dear brothers and sisters in Christ to split, to argue, to debate, to, to, to accuse one another of being stupid or being ignorant or of being proud or whatever you want to call it. And, and let me just say right at the start, before we dive in, I think there is room for disagreement on this doctrine. I do believe that. Um, like Mike Winger said um, in his discussion on this topic, he says, this is a family discussion, okay? So if you disagree with where I'm going to land in my interpretation of this verse, it's okay. Like, we are going to go to the same heaven because you're not saved by believing in election. You're saved by believing in Jesus, okay? You're not saved by perfect theology, but by a perfect savior, okay? Now, there are some certain basic theology that you cannot get wrong. Otherwise, you're not going to heaven, all right? But this is not one of them. But again, notice that if we get this wrong, we will be missing out on blessing God. So we have to get this right. We have to, because we are missing out on doing what Paul is doing. Um, and that's what I want to give to you. I personally have found this to be an endless fountain of joy for me, a joy of stability in my own life. And when I was doubting my salvation, when I struggled to believe that God loves me, election was the doctrine that pulled me out of the water and the, the sea of doubt. And that's what I want you to, believe, you to experience as well as we study this text. And, but let me say as well, although I don't think this is an essential doctrine for our faith, we should always remember this is the Word of God. We shouldn't come to it with our preconceived ideas and say, it cannot mean this because, right, the Bible has the final authority. When the Bible says something we don't like, we change. We don't change the Bible to fit with us. We change to fit with the Bible. We are created in His image and we should become like Him. Even if it's painful, even if we have to throw away things that we've been cherished or thought about for a very long time, we should be willing to do that. But if finding the pain, our soul's expanding to embrace a bigger God. And that's what I hope you will experience as well. So this afternoon, we're only going to look at two points. We're gonna, I'm going to define election. What does this text mean? And then I want to defend election. So just answer some objections to this, this doctrine. So let's begin by simply looking at the verse and seeing what it says. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. What does it say? And we should base our theology on that. So let's define it. The first question I want you to ask and answer is, who is the us of verse 4? So it says, even as he chose us in him. Who, who are those people? Who are the us there? 
Now, Paul already answered that in verse 1. Okay? Look, back, look back at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. So the, the us are the believers. The us are the Christians. They are the saints, the ones who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus alone. Now, how did we become a Christian in our, our lifetime? What happened with us in our, our lives when we were saved? And Paul answers that later in verse 13. Just drop down to verse 13. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, okay, so there's a hearing of the gospel, the, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you see what happened? So in time, what happens in time is someone preaches the gospel, someone announces the good news of Jesus, you hear it, and you believe. And at that moment, you are in Christ. You are in him. You are united to Christ. That happens. That's a willing choice. That's a free choice. Nobody forced you to believe. You weren't kicking and screaming like, oh, I don't really want to believe. Oh, I'm saved. <laughs> okay, no? That's not how it works. It's a free, willing choice. We come and we just see Christ as our greatest treasure, as the greatest person alive, and we will forever and ever love him and more and more. That happened in time, right? So you didn't put your faith in Christ a thousand years ago because you were not alive a thousand years ago. Okay? If you are, you can talk to me afterwards. <laughs> but verse 4 takes one step back. Verse 4 doesn't answer the question, it's, how did we become a Christian? Not in, from our perspective. So verse 13 is more from our perspective. We hear the gospel and we believe. But verse 4 takes us into the eternal perspective of how we became a Christian. Because this is outside of time. This is a choosing that didn't happen in time. Again, notice in verse 4, when did God choose us? Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. So that didn't happen in time. This is out side of time god's choice of you in christ happened before there were trees before there were birds before there were people a planet sin satan demons whatever you want to put in that there was nothing and god chose god had a choice in the eternal council of the trinity in other words you did not choose first <laughs> okay the issue is not who chose that god choose or that i choose that's not the issue. It's not an either or. It's both. But the question is, who chose first? Who took the initiative? And this text says, your faith preceded God's choice of you. He loved you first. That's what the Bible says, right? You love. Why do you love? Because he first loved you. And that first loved you was an eternal love. <laughs> it was before you were born, God knew your name. God knew you. God knew you'd be listening to me right now. It's amazing, right? But his choosing of us was not without Christ in mind. Notice in verse 4, it says, even as he chose us, in him, in him before the foundation of the world. So this was not, God didn't just choose us to be saved. He also chose us how to be saved. He also chose the means. He saw us. The only way we will be saved is if we are in Christ. That's how he chose us. He chose the means as well. Look over at verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's what in him means. When you are in him, you are united to Christ, you are redeemed, your sins are forgiven, and you are united to him. This means, now 
Now you have to follow. This is where some of the good news of election comes in. God already had all of your sins in view when he chose you. He already knew everything you will do and he chose you still. It's like marrying someone that you know is going to cheat on you in five years. And you marry them still. Because you are committed. Right? That's what God did for us. Like He knew all our sins, all our failures, before any one of us did anything. And he said, I love you. I will choose you. You are mine. And that's what you should preach to yourself when you fall short over and over again. That God's love for you is not based on you. It's not based on your performance. It's based on Christ's perfect love and his performance. So that's part of the good news. But, and this doctrine is strengthened once um, as we look at a few other verses as well. So again, um, it's always dangerous to just take one verse and build a whole entire theology on one verse. We need to see what does the whole Bible teach about this topic. Let me just read two more verses um, about this topic. Um, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God gave the grace of Christ to be saved before the ages began. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 to 5, Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Okay, Paul, how do you know that these people were chosen? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So those people who respond where the gospel is effectual, where people respond, those were the chosen ones. So that's how I know you're chosen. You're listening to the Bible. Okay? You, you're responding to the word of God. You're hearing the shepherd's voice and you come. Jesus said, I have sheep and they will hear my voice and they will come when I call them. Now, this is where it's helpful maybe to discuss. I just want to highlight two other views of this verse because I think... Um, there are alternative views that people have used to try to explain the, these verses. And I think it's helpful for us to look at those views and try to evaluate them as well. So the, probably the most popular alternative view is says that, no, God only chose those whom he foresaw would believe in him first. So it, as if God looks back and he stands back and he looks down the corridors of time and he sees those who will first choose him. And then he steps back and chooses them. Sorry. In other words, we, we are really the ones who choose first, right? We are the ones who initiate and then God responds. Now, there are some merits to this view. There are a couple of verses that says God foreknew those whom he predestined. And probably the most famous one is Romans 8, verse 29. I want you to turn there quickly with me. Let's turn to Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 29. So Romans 8 verse 29, and let's read 29 and 2 to 30. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see right there in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, those were the ones he predestined. So that's, that's where people take this. And I think the other verse is 1 Peter 1 verse 2, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. 
So those two verses are very, very close to the same thing, that those whom God foreknew, those are the ones he chose. But I do not think these verses teach that God waited passively to see who will choose him first, and then he chose them. Um, this is known, this, these verses are known as the golden chain of salvation. In other words, th there's a link here in verse 30 that talks about those whom God predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. There's a golden chain here, and not everybody who has been called are justified, all the, call, all the justified are glorified. Okay, now, here is where we have to do some thinking. I want you to try to follow the logic here of this verse. Um, it says that we are justified in verse 30, but now follow the logic here. Not everybody is justified in life, right? Not everybody believes in Jesus and are justified, but everybody in this verse is justified. But what happened just before justification? Just before justification, we see all the called, those whom God called, all of those whom God called are also justified, without exception. Every single person whom God calls in verse 30 are justified. But not everybody is justified, therefore not everybody is called in this verse. I hope you're following me, okay? So because all the called are justified and not everybody is justified, therefore not everybody is called in this sense. So this is God's sovereign call. This is when God calls people out of darkness into light, when he raises the dead. This is a sovereign call. And not everybody receives this call because not everybody is justified. So that already is a first clue that this is a sovereign act of God. This is something that God does. This is his initiative. This calling of God causes people to believe. It actually calls and creates what it commands. So you and I, we are not God. We can't create what we command. We can just call people to repent and call people to trust in Christ, but then God must give the inward call of opening their eyes to see Jesus as valuable. And those whom he calls, they will be justified. That's what the verse says. And now let's go one step back. Now all the called are predestined, okay, to be conformed to the image of his son, all of them, without exception. And so already just by looking at the middle of the verse, we can see that this is not a passive thing by God. This is not just God stepping back and waiting first to see what will happen and then he makes choices. No, this is God is actively saving people. God is initiating. He's calling people first and then people believe and are justified. And so here's another argument. And so when he says those whom he foreknew in verse 29, notice it doesn't say he foresaw or those the choices they made. That's what he foreknew. He didn't foreshow faith. He didn't foreshow a choice. What did he foreknow in verse 29? Verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew. So it's people whom God foreknows. It's not a choice that God foreknows. He foreknows people, specific people. So this is not just a, like an intellectual knowing. You know, so this is where we, we sometimes have a disadvantage when we come to the, when we think of the word knowledge. We, we, we often think of it as only intellectual. But in the Bible, when the Bible talks about knowing, knowing God and God knowing us, it's often in a very personal, intimate relationship. L um, listen to 1 Corinthians 8 verse 3. It says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, that's not just a passive knowing. That's just not, that's an intimate knowing from God to us. Those who love God, they are known by God. 
And that's the very same meaning in 1 Peter 1 verse 2 when it says we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Drop down to chapter 1 verse 20. It says that even Jesus has been foreknown before the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus has been foreknown before the foundation of all, not in a passive sense, but in an intimate, intimate sense. God knew his son in a personal, intimate relationship. So when it says, those whom he foreknew, I think we should interpret it like this, that God already set his heart on people before they were born. He already knew them and saw them in a saving relationship with himself. That's what I think it means biblically when it says that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. So that's the first view that I think is often um, pushed to say it, this choosing is only based on foreknowledge. But here's the second one. Um, and this one is called corporate election. Corporate election. Now, I must be honest, I've been really struggling to understand this view. So there's a big chance that I might even be misrepresenting the view right now. Okay, so, um, but I'm going to, I really, really tried not to make a straw man argument and just you know, defeat that argument or whatever. So I really am trying to represent this view fairly. And if any of you know that view better and you think I've misrepresented, please, please come. So, but the corporate election view places the emphasis on the fact that God chose a corporate people, not individuals. So they would say God chose Israel and the church as a corporate body, but not, not necessarily individuals before the foundation of the world to belong to that group. Only those who believe in Jesus are now part of the elect group, okay? So God didn't have a specific people in mind. He only had a corporate people in mind. So the church is like the vehicle, and when people climb on the vehicle, they become elect. They are part of the elect. That is God's chosen instrument or vehicle. So in other words, no one is elect until they put their faith in, in Christ. Then they become elect. That's what this view says. Now, here's an analogy I think is helpful for this view. It's, I've taken this word for word from Soteriology 101. I'm quoting now to understand this view. It says, concerning election and predestination, we might use the analogy of a great ship on its way to heaven. The ship, the church, is chosen by God to be his very own vessel. So you see, so it's the church chosen. Christ is the captain and pilot of the ship. All who desire to be part of this elect ship and its captain can do so through a living faith in Christ by which they come on board the ship. Election is always only in union with the captain and his ship. Predestination tells us about the ship's destination and what God has prepared for those mark in him by faith. God invites everyone to come aboard the elect ship through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I hope that analogy makes sense. So this is the corporate election view. But let me tell you why I think that view is incorrect. Why I do not think this is what this verse teaches. So according to this view, and I would say almost all the other views that doesn't hold to unconditional election, is that no one is elect until they believe. So that's what all of these views have in common. You only become elect when you believe. But the Bible tells you exactly the opposite. It says you are elect and therefore you believe. You see, so it, it swaps it around. It says the reason you believe is because you were chosen. So that's, I think that's the main problem. And it also kind of really er eradicates the words before the foundation of the world. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Those words before the foundation of the world would mean almost nothing if you only become elect when you believe in time. And let me give you a few verses to show how your, 
how God's election causes your believing. Um, here's one verse, John 6, verse 37. I think this is a very, very strong verse. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay, that's, that's, universe, that's everybody. Everybody that the Father gave to Christ will come to me. And then Jesus makes his promise. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, we often use the latter one, right? Whoever wants to come, and that's what we should do, right? We should say, hey, do you want to come? Come. And then all that the Father gave Jesus will come. <laughs> that's how it works. How many of those who will come to the Jesus whom the Father gave? All of them. The people that God gave to Jesus causes the faith. You see how it works. The invitation is for all, and then God draws people to himself. And that's what Paul believed in 2 Timothy 2.10. Listen to this. It's another great verse of this. 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, they were elect before they were saved. And Paul says, I'm enduring everything. I will suffer, I will die, so that those elect people will be saved. So keeping these things in mind, I think when we come back to Ephesians, you can just make your way back there as well, that when he says in 1 verse 4 that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that, he, that that choosing of God caused us to believe in God, not the other way around. And I think that's a consistent teaching of the entire Bible. Everything truly is from God, through God, and for God, for His glory. But let me close our time together with a few objections. Okay, so... If you are listening to me and you didn't come with me on this text, there's like probably like a thousand objections right now in your mind and in your heart. And I'm just going to try to answer the most common ones. I'm not even, if you have others, please bring it to me afterwards. We'd love to talk, to talk to you about that. But here's the first, and I would say probably the most important one. That's not fair. Right? If God chose people to be saved before the foundation of the world, and they will be saved, then that's unfair, that's unjust. God cannot do that. But here, what, so what, what makes this topic super, super difficult is that we bring into this topic and this discussion so many things we believe beforehand that we take for granted, presuppositions. We, we, all, we already take it for granted so that there's an emotional reaction when we hear it that we are quick to object and here's the presupposition that is wrong. So if you, if you evaluate what you believe beforehand, you can understand why this, this objection is wrong. Fairness and justice has to do with what we deserve. That's just simple what it is. So what do we believe when we say that's unfair if God doesn't save everybody? What, do we, what is our presupposition there? That we all deserve to be saved. That we all deserve at least even a chance to be saved. But neither of those two things are true. You and I don't deserve to be saved, and we don't even deserve a chance to be saved. Do you want one, one, one example in the Bible of this? What about the devil? When he sinned, no chances. Consigned to hell. One sin, done. No grace. Is God still good? Yes, he is. Is that the right thing to do? Yes, it is. None of us feel objection. Lord, you didn't even give the devil a chance. 
But that is how awful our sin is. That is what we deserve. We deserve nothing from God. We don't deserve to breathe. We don't deserve to sit here. But underneath, we kind of feel we're not that bad. Underneath our skin, we kind of feel, yeah, the serial killers deserve hell, but not me. You know, that guy that's really bad, they deserve hell, but, but look at what I'm doing. I'm an awesome person. Surely. You see, so the presupposition has another presupposition that we are good. But none of us are good. None of us seek after God. None is righteous. No, not even one. If God did the same thing with us that he did with the devil, he would have been perfectly just. If we sin and he said, all of you to hell, heaven would have clapped hands. And nothing would have been wrong with him. Nothing. That would have been what we deserve. And that's what we, we forget that we are no better than the devil. We're no better than him. We, we are all rebels against our holy creator. We all deserve what he deserves. So you don't really want justice from God. If you say that's not fair, you don't want fair. <laughs> In the sense of, okay, well, God is always fair, um, even with grace because he punished his son on the cross. But because God is rich in mercy, he chose people to be saved. He saved people. The real question is not why are everybody, why isn't everybody saved? The real question is why is anybody saved? Why are any of us going to heaven? None of us should be going. So that's, that's an amazing. This should cause you to stand in awe of God that he even saved one. That's the first, I hope that first objection is answered. Here's the second objection. And it normally comes with implications about this doctrine. So if God has decided whom he will save, why pray? Why evangelize? Why tell people about Christ? If he's already made up his mind and that number is fixed, why, why do the effort of telling people about Jesus? He, he's going to save people, right? He has chosen the elect. And that's why sometimes Calvinists are called um, the chosen frozen or the frozen chosen, right? You, get, you do get those Calvinists that just sit and say, I'm not going to evangelize. God will save them if he wants to. That's unbiblical. Okay? Again, here's an example where we just take our fallen logic and we just stretch it to an extreme. And we're not allowing the Bible to shape our logic, to shape our minds and our hearts. Why do we evangelize? Well, number one, because God said we should. So we do it because he said so. We evangelize because we love Jesus. We love him who commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. We evangelize because the Bible teaches that without the gospel, no one will be saved. Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People need to hear the word of Christ to be saved. In other words, God didn't just choose people and then just magically they get saved. He's also chosen the means to save them through our prayers, through evangelism, through ordinary things through inviting people to church, through the smallest thing God uses to draw people to himself. So we should be responsible because we are not God. It's often when we try to be God, we try to determine who the elect is. Like, but, but like Paul says, how do how will we know who the elect is? Those who hear the gospel and respond. Those who, where the word of God makes an impact. So our job is simple. And this actually gives you a lot of peace if you truly understand this. Our job is simple. Just tell people. Job done. Evangelism done. Successful evangelism. When nobody responded, success. Because that's not your job. 
to save people, to try to force people, to try to manipulate people to believe what you believe. You can't. Only God can open eyes. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can call people out of darkness into light. Our job is simple. Ordinary prayer, ordinary love, ordinary evangelism. Let God do the rest. So I hope that that helps as well. Let's do the third objection, the second last objection. Um, if God has chosen those he wants to save, then how can God judge us? So many times people say like, okay, well, he already determined who's going to heaven, who's going to hell. So how can he judge me for going to hell? Right? It's God's fault if I am lost. But again, here's another misconception, another presupposition that's wrong. Um, God doesn't send anyone to hell because he did not choose them. That's just simply not the reason. Why does God send people to hell in the Bible? Because of their sins, which they did willingly, which they did freely. In other words, it's not as if people are longing for God. People are running to God and God says, no, 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 I haven't chosen you out of the way. No, that's never happening. It's the opposite. No one loves God. No one seeks for God. All of us are running as fast as we can to the opposite direction from God because we all hate Him. We all want to make up a God in our own imagination and feel good about ourselves and think we're not bad. No one wants God. If God just leaves us, no one's going to heaven. All of us are running away and then God chooses those whom He will save and He opens their eyes. And those who are running away still are guilty for their willing running away. God is not pushing them as if he's like forcing them to sin. No, they're sinning very naturally, very willingly, and very freely. Again, take Satan as an example. God left him in his sin. God didn't choose to redeem Satan. He will be the first to be cast into hell. Yet no one will say, Lord, you didn't even give him a chance. That's unfair. You can't punish him. No. Satan sinned willingly and he rebelled willingly. In the same way that God did not choose everyone to be saved, leaving them in their sin doesn't excuse them of their sin. Their sin is willing to the God who gave them life and breath and everything to enjoy. It's amazing that God still spares the devil. Have you thought of that? Like He sinned and he's still alive. He's still, that is mercy. That is, he should have gone to hell immediately. But at the end of the day, I, I believe here's the only answer that will satisfy your heart. So the deepest answer to these questions of why, how can God judge? How can this be fair? Or how all of this is in Romans 9 verse 18 to 19. I think this is the, the deepest answer you can go to. I don't think there's any answer below this. Listen to Romans 8 verse 18 to 19. It raises the very same objection that we've been looking at. It says, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So God is free. He does whatever he pleases. And now the objection, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God is this sovereign, then why does he find fault with me? That's the very objection we've been looking at, right? And here's the answer. Here's the answer Paul gives in verse 20. But who are you? Who are you, O oh man, 
to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So Paul then said, no, 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 sorry, you have free will, you've misunderstood me. No, he doesn't go there. He just says, who are you? Who do you think you are to make that type of an objection? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? God is God. God is free. God is ultimate, final. This is a humbling. We, so ultimately, we need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. And pride never goes without pain. It's always painful. And here's the last objection. I, I want to say, I think I've spared the, the, the strongest objection for last. I think this is the best objection against election. Isn't that a contradiction to what the Bible says? So, so now, finally, the, the objector is coming inside the Bible, right? <laughs> like, yes, welcome home. Like, welcome here. Um, but doesn't the Bible say God loved the world that he gave his only son? Doesn't the Bible say that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Doesn't the Bible say that God is not even willing that one should perish and that all should come to Christ? How do those verses fit in with this verse? Or with other verses like them, right? And just to say, those verses that I've just quoted are true. Why? Because they are the revealed word of God. God I truly believe God doesn't desire anyone to go to hell. I believe that. I don't believe God wants one person in hell. I believe that because the Bible says that. I, be, I don't believe God has any pleasure in the death of the wicked because the Bible says that. I believe that. So we should be careful of using the Bible to, to deny the Bible, right? We should, we should take all of the Bible and try to see, can we make sense of these things together? And I think there is. I think there's a way to understand how God can be willing and wanting everyone to be saved and at the same time not choose everyone to be saved. And a simple way is that I believe the Bible teaches that God has a will of desire, something that is close to his heart, something he desires, something that makes him happy, something that makes him sad, as well as a sovereign will, which he plans and, and does whatever he pleases, sometimes even going against what he wants or what he desires. Now that might sound, I know many people who hear that think that's God, so God is crazy, but this is even true with us. Let me give a human example and then a, a, a biblical example. So if I have to give my son a hiding, I don't find some kind of a pleasure in giving him a hiding. There's no kind of, sometimes there's something in me that says, I don't want to do this. I'm, I want to skip this. But then I do it anyway because I know it's good. I know this is the ultimate good. So here's the question, what is the ultimate good for God? And here's where we have different answers, right? The ultimate good is to glorify himself. That's, that's the answer. So why doesn't he save everybody? To glorify himself. So here's the biblical example. Look at the cross. I think the cross, if, if you are battling mentally, theologically, philosophically, if you are battling with these things, just fix your eyes upon the cross. There we see... I think both of these wills in action, there's a will of desire. Do you think God wanted or desires people to spit on his son, to put a crown of thorns on his head, to crucify him, to lie, to manipulate? 
No, God doesn't want any of those things, right? Because his will of desire, as he's shown us in his word, is do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder. He doesn't want any of those things to happen. So God didn't find pleasure, some kind of a weird pleasure in, in um, how people were treating his son. It was the worst sin ever. It was the worst sin. Holocaust looks like child's play compared to the crucifixion of the Son of God. Nothing compares to that sin. So it was the greatest sin ever committed by mankind in history and ever will be. And yet every single part of it was planned, willed, part of the sovereign will of God. At the same time, listen to Acts, Acts chapter 4 verse 27. It says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The Gentiles, Pilate, the, the Jews, all of them were doing what was predestined. And at the very same time, they were completely free. They did whatever they wanted to do. God didn't force them. God didn't manipulate them. Both are true. Do you see, beloved? So do you see, when you look at the cross, you have a perfect example the greatest sin ever was planned by God. Why? To glorify himself and to save his people. To save his people. God sees the big picture. All of his plans are for his glory and our good. So here's the conclusion. I believe this is what this verse teaches us. Why are you a Christian? Why are you in Christ? How did your blessings come to you? Did you do anything for that? No. You have whatever you have because God chose you before the foundation of the world in him. That choosing caused you to believe. That choosing brought you to him when you heard the gospel and when you believed. Like the biology book, you, you are reading how you are saved. And it should cause you to stand in awe like Paul praising him and giving you confidence to share the gospel freely and letting God do the work. Because ultimately where we need to be is in verse 6. That's where we need to come when it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's where we need to be. The only reason why you are not going to hell and someone is, is grace. No, nothing else. It's grace. And that's why you can say, to the praise of your glorious grace. Beloved, meditate on this. Rest in God's love for you. It's not determined upon you. It's by his own will, his own mercy. And next week, Lord willing, we'll look at some applications, six or seven applications of how this truth should change our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that when we start to delve into your word when um, we start to look at the verses and see what it says and perhaps initially our hearts are pained and hurt and maybe even rebellious or in uprising against you. Lord, that just also shows the, the depth of our sin, the depth of our rebellion against you. Oh Lord, help us to, to, to study this text carefully and to submit ourselves to this text. Lord, I pray for true humility and 
that our pride, that even the last little bit of our pride will die. Lord, do whatever you must, do whatever you can to destroy our pride. For, our, for you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble, Lord. Humble us before you. I pray that you will cause us to rejoice in your glorious grace. And that will give us confidence to pray for the lost, to, to seek the lost like Jesus sought the lost, that we would share the gospel freely like the parable of the sower and where the, the ground was ready, then there it will grow and bear fruit. Help us to trust in you and rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.